I want to talk to you this morning um, from my heart. I feel like God is, is speaking some things to us today, and I don't want to miss what he's got to say. I feel um, that we have come to a place in our walk with God to where uh, it's an interesting place to be because when people would preach years past about the coming of the Lord, it felt, even though some could preach it so powerfully and bring it to the room, it felt so distant. But now when we preach about the coming of the Lord, it's almost like you can hear the sound of the trumpet in the distance. We're so very close to the coming of the Lord. And I want to be ready when he comes. I know there's some that have based their theological ideas and um, their end time study of eschatology. They have, they're, they're taking a, a, a chance that perhaps they'll get to jump on the late train after the rapture. And I'm going to tell you, there's not going to be another train leaving. I, I want to be ready. When the Lord comes and the trumpet sounds, I want to be ready. I want to go. And I don't want to miss it because uh, I have allowed, as uh, Paul told the church at Colossae, he said, the rudiments of this world and the traditions of men to pull me down. But I am putting everything I have tonight in the knowledge of who Jesus is. For it's in that very same letter that he said, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. So while some are investing where moth and rust doth corrupt, I choose to lay up for myself treasures in something that's eternal today. Amen. And I'm glad that I know who Jesus is. If you're thankful today, would you give him praise? Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Amen. So... Uh, I'm going to move just a little bit. I'm, I'm going to end up in 1 Peter, but I want to start in Titus, if we could do that. Let's go to the book of Titus. I'm messing with them in the back today on the computer, I'm sure. Um, but I want to talk to you just a little bit from uh, the book of Titus, chapter 3. And uh, we'll begin at verse... Uh, let's just begin today at verse number 5. We'll do that. Titus, chapter 3, and verse number 5. I hear pages flipping. I love that. I'm, th I'm thankful for this old book. Amen. I always got one close to me. Anybody still keep one close to your bed? Isn't that wonderful? In the middle of the night, you can just reach over and grab the Word of God. I've, I've slid it under my pillow. I've, man, I've put it all kinds of places. I, I like having the Word. I want to read to you very quickly. Verse, uh, verse 5. Not... By works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Everyone say amen. amen. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Can we read that together again one more time? Let's do that as a body. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us say amen to the reading of the word of God. You, you may be seated. Thank you for those of you that were standing. 
They like to stand in the Word. And there's nothing wrong with that. Amen. I want you to help me today. I want to preach to you from a very simple subject. I want to preach to you today about washed. I'm washed. And I'm thankful that I am. Titus, uh, this is a quite a controversial scripture with some. As a matter of fact, some base their entire theological doctrines on this, on Titus 3 and 5. And they say it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done at all. So there's no value whatsoever in works. And I am, I am not a works guy that say, that, uh, saying that works is what saves us. I think you need to understand the context of the scripture. It's not our works that have saved us. In other words, if we were to look at this in pure context, what he's saying is there's nothing in this world that you could ever do to deserve the salvation of the Lord. There's no work that you could ever do that would make you worthy to deserve it. You are saved. You are saved because of his mercy. And I'm telling you today that there are some in this room that were born uh, second, third generation in the church. There are some that you're first generation you don't have any kind of background. You don't have any pedigree. And I want to tell you that the ones who were raised in the church, they don't deserve it any more than you deserve it. Amen. They don't deserve it any more than you deserve it because it's not about our works. Now, works are important or James wouldn't have mentioned James. Man, we could get in James and talk about it for a long time. James said, uh, he said that faith without works is dead. And he said, some of you talk about uh, having faith with no works. And he said, but I tell you what, if you show me uh, your works, I'll show you my faith. He said, there's going, to, there's going to have to be some works at some point in your life. So it's not our works that save us. But have we ever thought about the fact that it may be our works that keep us saved? It's our works that keep us continually trying to be like Jesus. I like what uh, Brother Jordan said in class this morning about salvation being an elastic word. I, I was saved. I'm still being saved continually, working on my salvation with fear and trembling. And I will be saved in the age to come from sin and wrath. And we thank God for that. Salvation is not something that just happens one time in our lives and we walk away from that salvation and say, oh yes, no man can pluck me out of the hand of God. I believe context is so vitally important because it is true that no man can pluck me out, but boy, I can jump out whenever I'm ready. Come on, somebody. Amen. Calvinism is a scary thing when people say, well, once you get saved, no one can pluck you. I've always wondered how you build a church on Calvinistic theology and why people keep coming back to church when they don't have to be there. If I'm going to be saved forever, why, I mean, why am I here today? Why don't I just go do whatever I want to do and just be saved? I don't want to, I don't want to jump in something that says, once I got saved, I'm saved. That's dangerous. It's scary. It's dangerous theology to say that because no man can pluck me out of the hand of God, that I'm going to die saved. That makes preachers have to come up with some very interesting sermons at funerals. <laughs> you just think churches need a creative department. Pastors need a creative department at some funerals, let me tell you. When families look at you and say, he was such a good man, you're like... We loved him. You know, it, it takes some creative thinking sometimes. I've had people walk right up to me and say, do, do you think they made it? And I just say, they made it somewhere. They're, they made it somewhere. I don't know. They made it to the hands of God. That's all I can say. They made it to the hands of God. And God is just, and we let God do the judging. 
But I want you to understand today that although it is a fact, I'm going somewhere with this, although it is a fact to us that I am not saved by works and that I have to continually work on my life to keep myself clean, there can also be a hopeless, helpless feeling that comes in the lives of some people because it's the way the enemy works. That you have been saved from sin and then you are tempted again to become that sinner. And because you are tempted in this world, you beat yourself to death and say, because I can't keep it all together and keep it all right, I might as well just quit and throw in the towel. And this is something that the enemy has used from the very beginning of time. He'll make you begin to question the word of God. He'll make you question how God feels about you. And he'll make you question how you feel about yourself. And so we begin to question things in our lives. Is it really worth it because... I cannot be perfect and because I don't want to be a hypocrite then I don't want to just keep going because I made a mistake so I, I, I want to help somebody I told this story it was very recent I don't remember exactly uh, which service it was it was a recent story but it's worth repeating today of the man that came to my grandfather Bishop R.V. Bingham uh, came to my grandfather and, and said to him that uh, he would have came to this church if there weren't so many hypocrites here and so Brother Bingham just told him he said well one more won't hurt come on Listen, I'm going to tell you something, man. Hypocrites are everywhere. You got hypocrites at your job, but you keep going to work. You got hypocrites at school, but you keep going to school. Why in the world would you let the enemy keep you out of the house of God because there's a few hypocrites around? We're not denying the presence of hypocrites, but I'm telling you, I'd rather be in his presence than worry about their presence. They're everywhere, and that doesn't mean they're not good people. It just means they're trying to work some things out. Hopefully, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Hopefully, they're going to get it together, and they're going to get it right. But understand me when I tell you today that if, if they're still a hypocrite today, it's probably because they were a hypocrite when they came to God. And if it does anything, it helps us seal the case that it's really not by works of righteousness, which we have done, that God don't mind saving a hypocrite as much as he does a good person. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad when I look around this room today that some of you have a testimony of what the Lord has brought you from and that your salvation was not predicated on where you've been but rather on a God who believes in you where you are and can take you where he wants you to go. There is something so supernatural that happens that, that it's so hard to explain and and I'll be honest with you there are things about the scripture that are uh, you, you know people really dumb down the scripture uh, so badly in this day and age and they they talk about uh, things in the scripture I, and and I want to be careful how I say this but they try to make it so common they try to make God so common as a matter of fact Jude warned us about that he said they've gone after the gainsaying of Korah Korah had a spirit of taking sacred things and bringing it down while elevating himself. It was a, it was a trade-off. And they do that with the Scripture. They take the holy things of God, the Scripture of God, and they try to make it so very common. But I, I want to tell you something about your Bible, okay? Now, don't be offended when I say this because I don't mean it negative. But the Bible's weird. It is. There are things in the Bible that if it wasn't in the holy context of sacred Scripture, I'd tell you you were a fool for believing it. I'm just being honest. I mean, there's things about the Scripture. You, you, you take the Old Testament, thank God it's not still this way, but you take the Old Testament, 
Like, so you mean to tell me that because you bring a bird or a, a ram or a lamb or a bullock and somebody slices that thing's throat, puts it on an altar, that your sins are atoned for the year? That, like, you can bring an offering like that, somebody kill it, and it's taken care of. Like, I, wouldn't, I, don't, I don't believe anything like that. There's no way. And you look at New Testament conversion, and it becomes even more. You know, it's like you look at the New Testament conversion, you're like, so what you're saying to me is I, I was this and I was that and I did all these things and I was a horrible man, I was a horrible woman or whatever. Maybe you weren't, maybe you were perfect like some people. But I was a bad person. I did things that I shouldn't have done. I think we could all go there. I've done things that I shouldn't have done. And so you're saying to me that all I have to do, all I have to do is bow my knee and be full of enough humility to say before God, I made the mistake, I've made a mess of my life, and now I want you to help me start cleaning this up. And that God will do that? So, so, what, so what, you, what you're saying to me in, then, preacher, is that if, if I'm willing to confess my sins to God and get down on my knees and, and, and pray a repentant prayer and get true repentance in my heart, that when I stand up, it wasn't just empty words that I said, but now I'm repenting and turning my face toward God and walking away. All I've got to do is walk away from that life and start walking towards Him, and He's willing and faithful and just to forgive that. Now, that, 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 that's, that's mystical that, That's insanity It's crazy for us to believe That we can live a horrible life like that And that this thing called mercy Is so powerful That it can embrace us Not when we're at our best But when we're at our worst If that was in any other book I'd tell you it's insanity That I could repent and that God would even take the time to listen to me. So it's a book that tells about how powerful and how amazing and how astounding he is. First of all, why does he even take time for me? Why? I mean, so, so, so you're telling me, starting in, in Genesis, in, in, in the very beginning, that this God that created all things just spoke the word and it happened. And he separated the firmaments and the heavens and the waters. And, and then, then he began to create animals in the sea, above the sea, and all the cattle and the beasts and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. We'll get King James on you there. He created all of that. And he did it in a six-day period and rested on the seventh day. And he took care of me. And you're, you mean to tell me that that God is the one that has his ear tuned in when I get down and say, God, I blew it. I have royally messed up. God, I don't know that it could get any worse. You mean that is who has inclined his ear to listen to me? Oh, yes, he is. So, so, so then, then you're saying now that he forgives my sins. Now, I'm telling you, your Bible's weird. Uh, so now he's told me my sins are forgiven, but, but they're still there. So you're saying then that all of the things that I've done, if I'll just put on a robe and get up there in that glorified bathtub and that somebody will put me down in that water and invoke the name of Jesus over me when I go down in that water that when like when, when I come up out of that water all my sins are washed away that, 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 that's exactly what I'm telling you today I'm saying there is no sin that has ever been committed by man that the blood of Jesus is not powerful enough to wash away your sin. 
I'm not sure if you realize where I've been, preacher. I'm not sure if you realize what I've done. You quit letting the devil lie to you today. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. His mercy is so powerful. And his name is so powerful. And his blood is so powerful. So, so, so then it's not, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. No, as a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. Because there's nothing I could do to afford this great gift. There's nothing I could do to deserve this great gift. What it is, is it is this amazing little word. It's an amazing little word that, 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 that somehow this mystical book came up with talking about this thing called mercy. That when I'm at the lowest that I've ever been in that while we were yet sinners. He died for us. Now, I know this may not excite some of you that's got it all together, but you just hear me when I tell you today. I still get excited when I think about it that he didn't wait for me to get my act together. He didn't wait on me to be perfected. He didn't wait on me to be sure that all my ducks were in a row. While we are yet. Uh, and so, so, so then... Washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So t- tell me, tell me, tell me about this Holy Ghost thing. Now, I, this is this is a little interesting. Here we got. I want I want to know a little bit more about this. So what you're saying to me then is in the Book of Acts, in the second chapter, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that there's 120 people gathered together in a room, and all all, all of these people are now being endued with power from on high, like it was said in Acts one and eight was going to happen. They're being endued with power from on high, and what you're saying to me is that. That, that all of a sudden, there comes a sentence. Now, folks, if this is any other book right now, you'd be getting up leaving and saying, this dude's a kook. Listen. Suddenly, there comes a sound from heaven. They're sitting in a great big huge dining room in an upper room. I've been there. They're sitting in this great big huge room where, where, where Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. 120 people in this great big huge room. And they're sitting there for seven to ten days. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere... This sound did not come from the earth. It was a sound, isn't this crazy, that came from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Okay. And, and, and then there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set on each of them. And, and, and what, what, what about that? And, and they were all filled? They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. You know, only kooky people speak in tongues. O- only crazy people speak in tongues. You know, when my grandfather came to Anderson in 1966, uh, this city's always been full of religious spirit, big time. I mean, big, big time. It's a religious mecca for some. And there were people that pastored very prominent churches in this town that at that point they said, if you spoke in tongues, it was of the devil. And now people on staff at those same churches speak in tongues. Say it's of the devil. And so I've always, I've always said, you know, I think it's kind of interesting because We give the devil a whole lot of credit by saying that the devil has power to produce anything that good. 
And speaking in tongues is of the devil. Why aren't they doing it in every nightclub in America? It's speaking in tongues is of the devil. Why, why, why don't they do it at every seance that every witch and warlock and every demonic power that's trying to rule the darkness in this world? Why don't they all do it? Because the enemy has nothing that's as powerful as the spirit of the living God. Nothing. You just write that down in your journal. There is nothing that compares to the power of God. Lucifer is not the arch nemesis of the almighty God. He is not the antithesis. He is not the equivalent of. There is no equal to our God. There is no power like our God. We're waiting on, we're, we're waiting on God to find his kryptonite to finally be able to whoop the enemy. You hear me when I tell you right now. That there is something so crazy that's happening behind the scenes when these cloven tongues like as a fire set on these people and they're all filled with the Holy Ghost and begin to speak with other tongues. What, 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 what really happened there, Pastor? Okay, it's like this. Jesus said in John 14, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come again to you. Yes. Colossians says it, that it is the Spirit of Christ in you. It's the hope of glory. Now, hang on. This Christ that was crucified on the cross... His, his spirit dwells in me. No, no way. There is no way that what's written in that book is true. That the spirit of him that was raised from the dead is now dwelling in my heart. Can I tell you again today, it is not by works of righteousness which you have done. But it is by his mercy. It is not because I was perfect, but because he was perfect. And he was sinless. And he chose to dwell in the hearts of man. He told his disciples, he said, today I'm walking with you and soon I shall be in you. I want to tell you today that when the Spirit of God dwells within us, there is an outward manifestation that begins to roll off of your tongue. That the Spirit of God has indwelt that human body and you'll begin to speak with other tongues. Not not as man gives the utterance, but as God gives the utterance. Well, I mean, really, what, what, a, what a crazy thought. So, Pastor, you're saying it doesn't matter who. Let, let me tell you all something amazing. I can't wait till we get all this junk behind us that's going on in the name of the Lord. All this uh, cuss word 19. You know, I don't like to say the word. And... Uh, all this mess behind us because I've been in prisons, preaching in prisons. Murderers. Rapists. Dark people. Come up. Now, it's not like this one. Beautiful chapel. It's, it's not like this one. It's a little bit smaller. The altar's a little bit smaller. Probably about the width of this here. And everybody said, don't, don't go in there. Be afraid. People are, people are crazy, man. You know why they're in there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know why they're in there. I know, I know why they're in there. And these crazy people, man, they, they've killed people. Like, these people are crazy. Oh, yeah, I know. They've killed people. And you get to talking about this thing called mercy. Oh. And all these hard people, man, these are, these are whew, wow. 
these are murders. Don't, don't, you know, don't you know what you're doing? Yeah. I'm going in there and telling them about this man. His name is Jesus. And Jesus didn't just die for Pentecostals in suits. They didn't know what to do with Jesus when he started reading out the book of Isaiah in the synagogue. He said, he said, I've been anointed this day to preach the gospel. To bind up the brokenhearted. To set at liberty them that are bruised. And he finishes reading the word and he goes, this day hath this reading been fulfilled right before your eyes. They're like, who do you think you are? Can I tell you right now? The world's never understood how his mercy could reach down to us. He has been anointed to preach the gospel. And the gospel will absolutely bind up the brokenhearted. Amen. It will set at liberty them that are bruised. It will do a work in you like you cannot imagine. But it's not just a fable. It's not just a story. It's not just another Bible tale. It's true. them big old dudes man like they could they could bench press me and four guys just like me they'll come walking up to that altar hands lifted tears coming down and I, I I've been there look over motion walk over there and say, yes sir pastor I need to be baptized in Jesus name well we can make it happen and I've gone in there with these guys into a baptistry. Man, you know what you're doing? You're going in there with these crazy people, and it's, 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 there's I mean, what, what if they, what if they, I mean, what if they try to drown you? I'll be honest with you, it never crossed my mind. It's never crossed my mind, and and, and, I, and I'm, I'm I'm walking in here, and it should probably make people nervous. I don't know, but the way the baptistry was, was down in the ground, so I'm baptizing this guy, and. I'm doing like this right here. I'm down on my knees, and, and I'm, I'm trying to baptize him. When all of a sudden, one of these prisoners come up behind me. I know I should be scared. One of these prisoners come up behind me, and he grabs me by the back of my shirt, and he's holding on. He's like, go ahead, brother. Lean all you need to. <laughs> he's holding me up. As I take somebody, please don't think I'm saying this ugly, because I don't either. But I'm taking somebody that don't deserve it. All rights, the court said they don't deserve it. They're going to rot in there and it's going to be over. But oh, great God, have mercy. Man, I feel him here right now. My brother, I love using that. My brother, your brother, he ain't nothing like you. That's, that's my brother. Upon the profession of your faith. Because you have repented of your sins. In your sins, they may have been red as scarlet, but they're about to be white as snow, my brother. Upon the profession of your faith, because you have repented of your sins and you now desire to be baptized. Indeed, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
But pastor, I know about the 120 in the upper room. They were righteous people. I know why God would fill them. Well, then tell me about that prisoner that comes up out of the water and doesn't deserve it. But all of a sudden, his mouth begins to move. And he begins to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utter. I don't care if it's in the prison house. I don't care where it is. His mercy endureth forever. Somebody shout washed. I'm, I'm, I'm hurrying. I've been washed. I've been washed. You hear that devil? I've been washed. You just try to remind me of my past. It's too late. I've been washed. When I was a kid, we all listened to Carmen. He just, he just uh, passed away a few months ago. Carmen was, man, he was something else. He was so funky. My mom was scared to let us go one time. She's like, I don't know about this. I'm like, yeah, I know, man. He's like, Phew. he's like talking about down with JC. You know, I'm like, Ooh. And the dude was scary. But he, he played out these little scares. How many people in here ever listened to Carmen? You're all backslid. My God. <laughs> Carmen, had, he, had this, he had this skit thing that he was doing. And, and uh, I, it may have been Satan Bite the Dust. I don't remember. It was one of them. I, I had all of them. And uh, I, I remember when the standard came out. Man, I, I was doing backflips. The standard was so good. That was so good. But my, my, my point is he, he was doing this, this deal. And he was talking about Satan. And uh, I've used this so many times through the years because it, it never gets old to me. But he said, every time that Satan comes to remind you of your past... You just remind him of his future. <laughs> well, pastor, my past, it just keeps haunting me, man. Things I've done in my past. Look, there's always going to be dogs barking. Well, there's people that hold it against me. This is going to sound insensitive. Who cares? I'm not here for them. It's not by works of righteousness that I have done. It's by his mercy. Whether you show mercy or not, he's shown mercy. I don't like it. Well, I mean, I think there's some people that, 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 that deserve it. And, and there's some that don't. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm in the second group. Come on now. I said, I'm in the second group. Pa Pastor, you've been in church all your life, man. I mean, dear God, listen. My mother and daddy can't be spiritual enough for me to be saved deserving. No such thing. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration. The renewing of the Holy Ghost. The word washing... In the Greek is a word lutron. This word washing is used only two times in all of the New Testament. The second place that you find is in Ephesians 5. When he said that Christ loved the church. It's a part that really it's hard to preach because it says wives submit yourselves to your husband. And I don't feel like fighting that battle this morning. <laughs> he said, but, boy, 
Man, I'm glad y'all love me. He said, but Christ gave himself. He said, give, give, give your wife, wife, submit yourself to your husband. As Christ left the church, because Christ gave himself, Christ gave himself for the church that he might, sanct- verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of water by the word. Somebody shout washed. There's only two occasions where this word washed is mentioned. One time it's the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The second time is by the washing of the word. Now I don't find this at all to be a coincidence. That is by the washing of the word and the washing of his spirit by which I am clean. Now I, I, I know again, I, I, I am, I'm fully aware that we have a, a lot of really, really, really spiritual people. That never make mistakes. But can I preach to the real ones for just a minute? I, I, I'd like to take you, if I could, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9. Everybody doing okay? I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of schedule here a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Well, we like this right here now. Now, you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is strong preaching right here. Now, be not deceivers, neither fornicators, nor idolaters. Somebody say, get them. (laughs) That's right. All you freak shows, you idolaters, you adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Let's do it again. Somebody really. Go get them. Let's go get them fornicators. Preach at them, Paul. You go, you go get them. All oh, them adulterers. You go, you go get them undeserving freak shows. They don't, they don't deserve it. Go ahead, verse number 10. Here it comes. I can't stand somebody stealing from me. You go get them thieves. What about them covetous people? How, how about them drunkards? That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Drunk people walking in the church. Who do they think they are? Come on. I need y'all to help me burn my bad spirits. Go get them. Yeah, we don't want we don't want them kind. No revilers, nor nor extortioners. You just tell them, Pastor. They're not gonna inherit the kingdom of God. Come on, one more time. Verse 11. Are you sure you want to go get them? Because such Such were some of you But oh God I'm going to shout But you Are I've been washed And I've been sanctified I am justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of our God. It's by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's by the washing of the Word. But thank God Almighty, I've been washed. I feel something moving in here right now. 
Let me dig just a little deeper and I'll get you out of here. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 verse 19. This is some of the most confusing language in the New Testament when you read it in a hurry. Romans chapter 7 verse number 19. I'm going to break it down for you Gerber style. We're going to digest this, all right? He said, for the good that I wish I could do. He said, I, I wish I could do it, but the evil I do not and that I do. What's he, what's he saying, Pastor? He said, I, what I really wish I could do, I, I don't do it. And the evil that I say I'm not going to do, I do it. Go ahead. Now, if I do that that I didn't want to do, there's no more I that do it, but the sin that I thought he was, I mean, this guy's preaching. He's like writing. This is like the most spiritual dude that's ever been converted, Pastor. Well, if I sin, then it's not me. It's, uh, it's the sin that dwells in me. It's interesting. 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, turn to somebody close to you today and tell them it's not going away. This is some of the best preaching I think I could ever do is just reading this right. This is so good. The apostle said, when I try to do good, there is always evil. God have mercy. Listen to what pastor's telling you today. You will never get good enough to make evil go away. It is going to be the fight of your life from the day that you are saved. That you're going to have to continually strive against your flesh. And let your flesh know, I have been washed and you will not win. I know what I used to be, but I have been washed. And I don't intend on God have mercy. I feel the Holy Ghost so strong right now. If I've ever known that God is reaching for somebody, I feel him reaching in this room right now. God, I feel the Holy Ghost moving in this room. You will never get good enough. That evil is not going to press you. But every time you feel that pressing against you, you need to let the devil know, I've been washed, I've been sanctified, and I've been justified through Jesus Christ. I do a lot of reading. Not as much as I would like to do. But I, I, I do a lot of reading and I read different things. I don't, read, I don't just read a bunch of books about God, because honestly, I, if I'm just going to read books about God, I'd rather just read the Bible. And so I find interesting things to read. Back in about 2000, the copyright was, I, I looked this morning, was 2000, and it was copyrighted in 2002. Again, for some reason, it must have been a second edition or something. But there was a, there's an author, he's written several books since then. His name is Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell's a, a, a very talented writer. Uh, I've never enjoyed anything else that he wrote like I did this first book that I read called The Tipping Point. The Tipping Point uh, is about uh, epidemics, how they happen. Uh, there's a tipping point that happens in, in every epidemic, every pandemic. There's a, there's a certain tipping point that once the weight shifts too much, it goes that way. And he, he talks about that in the whole book. It's been literally, I, I guess if it was 2002, that'd be uh, 19 years, 19 years ago that I read the book. And I'm I was driving home from Wisconsin yesterday from a funeral, and the Lord brought a story to me from a book that I read 19 years ago, whatever it was. I don't know exactly when I read it, but that's when it was, I, I had it right after release, so let's just say 15, 15 to 20 years ago. 
I'm driving down the road. I've read, I don't know how many books since then. But I got a stack next to my bed that I just got to bring down to the office. It's stacked up as high as my table next to my bed. I just read it and set it over there. And the Lord brought this story to my mind. You know how he just quick and sings, Brother Snow, in your spirit? I'm driving down the road, coming through Chicago. That'll make anybody call on the Lord. <laughs> oh, Whew. Lord have mercy. I'm coming through Chicago, and this story came to me. Now, this is not, uh, this is not verbatim out of the book. I shortened it up to make it make sense. So I'm just going to read this to you. If you, if you want to fact check me, go get it. It's Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell. I'll just show you the book, save you the $10 you can buy it at Goodwill for now. In the mid-1980s, the New York Transit Authority was dealing with an epidemic of crime in the subway system. It was estimated 170,000 people per day were entering the system by one route or another without paying a token. Some were kids who were simply uh, jumping over the turnstiles. Others would lean backwards on the turnstile and break it and force their way through. And once one or two or three or people began cheating the system, other people who might not have otherwise have considered evading the law would join in reasoning in their minds that if some people weren't going to pay, then they shouldn't have to pay either. And so the problem began to snowball. The problem was exacerbated by the fact that the fair beating was not an easy fight because there was only, listen to me, only $1.25 at stake. This is how the politicians uh, justified They said it's only $1.25. It's $1.25 times $170,000. They said it's only $1.25 and it's not worth the fight when there are more serious crimes that are happening down on the platform and on the trains themselves. It all comes back to what we know, and if you've studied anything in psychology the last probably 10 years or so, they mentioned this. It's called the broken windows theory. The broken windows theory was a brainchild of criminologist James Q. Wilson and a man by the name of George Kelling. It's really powerful stuff. Wilson and Kelling argued that crime is an inevitable result of disorder. If a window is broken and left unrepaired, people walking by will conclude that no one cares and no one's in charge. I've taught and preached the broken window theory for many years. Soon, more windows will be broken, and the sense of anarchy will spread from the building that the window's in to the street which it faces, sending a signal to the street that anything goes. So in a city, relatively minor problems like graffiti and public disorder and aggressive panhandling, they write are all equivalent of broken windows, invitations to more serious crimes. Now, don't let me lose you here because I'm fixing to take you somewhere. So this George Kelling that was one of the masterminds of the broken windows theory was actually hired in the mid-1980s by the New York Transit Authority. Kelling was hired by them to come on and be a consultant for the problems in the broken subway system. And so Kelling comes on, he comes on with them to work with them, and they ask him to put the broken window theory into practice. And so... They obliged bringing in a new subway director by the name of David Gunn to oversee a multi-billion, yes, that's with a B, in the 80s, a multi-billion dollar rebuilding of the subway system. Listen to this. Against the advice of many, Mr. Gunn's focus for rebuilding the subway system for the New York Transit Authority was graffiti. They were like, look, it's paint. You're not going to fix the problem by fixing paint. He insisted and said to them in their meetings, he said, the graffiti 
is symbolic of the collapse of a system. As long as they can paint it, the system is broke. He said when you looked at the process of rebuilding the organization and morale, you had to win against the battle of graffiti. Without winning that battle, all the management reforms and physical changes weren't going to happen. He said, we were about to put in a group of new trains that were worth $10 million apiece. And unless we did something to protect them, we knew exactly what would happen. They would last for one day and a $10 million train would be vandalized the next day. So he drew up a management system and a structure with precise goals and timetables. Cleaning up the system and I quote, line by line and train by train. He started with the number seven train that connects Queens to Midtown Manhattan and began experimenting with new techniques of cleaning off the paint. On, on the steel, uh, stainless steel cars, solvents were used. On the painted cars, the graffiti was simply just painted over. He made a rule, and I quote, my God, I don't know why this came to me yesterday. He said, once a car was reclaimed, it should never be allowed to be vandalized again. At the end of the number one line in the Bronx where trains turned to stop before turning around and going back to Manhattan, he set up a, you ready? A washing station. A cleaning station. In the Bronx, in the middle of this, he sets up a cleaning station. And if a car came in with graffiti, then the graffiti had to be removed during the changeover. Or the car was removed from service. He said, I'm not putting a dirty car back in. If they vandalize it, when it leaves this room, it's going to be fixed. Listen, I'm going to quote this right here. He said that dirty cars, I quote dirty cars, he called them, which had not been cleansed of graffiti, were never to be mixed with clean cars. The idea was to send an unambiguous message to the vandals themselves and let them know, you don't rule here. We had a yard up in Harlem on 135th Street where the trains would lay up overnight. And the kids would come in on the first night and they would paint the whole side of the train white. Then they would come in the second night after it was dry and they would draw the outline. Then they would come up the third night and they would color it in. It was a three-day job, he said. We knew the kids would be working on one of the dirty trains. And what we would do is we would wait for them on the third day to finish their mural. Then we'd walk over with rollers of paint and we'd paint over it. He said the kids were literally in tears, but we were up and down, up and down. They were saying, don't cover it up. He said, up and down, up and down. They came, it took them three days, up and down, up and down. Here we are. What are you doing? We're washing it. Why, 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 why are you doing this? Why, why are you trying to? There, there's still problems down there on the train station. He said, why in the world are you doing this? He said the message was going to be loud and clear. If you want to spend three nights of your time vandalizing a train, that's fine. But your artwork will never see the light of day. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying there's going to be times in your life when you come in from the outside world that everything has been pushing against you and it's been pressing against you. But when you walk into that closet behind closed doors, you can get down on your face and say, Lord, would you wash me one more time? Because when I leave this room, I'm letting the devil know you don't have the final say in my life. You might try to put a mark on me, but the things that you've tried on me will never see the light of day. You just keep on fighting, devil. Every time I try to do good, evil is present with me. But every time you try, I'm going to the word of God. I'm going to the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I am washed. 
I close. I want to help somebody in this house today. You listen, I, I'm, I'm going to be as real as I know how to be with you today. You've been beating your brains out because you walked in here with some graffiti on you this morning. Welcome to the turnaround cleaning station. <laughs> there is a fount. Man, I feel something when I go to talking about the blood up in here. There is a fountain of crimson blood in this house this morning. You can't see it. And it's one of them crazy things that I've talked about in the scripture. You cannot see it. But that blood is in this house this morning. And though your sins be red as scarlet and graffitied by this world, if you'll take one plunge beneath, he'll remove all those filthy stains. He'll Come on, somebody. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it. Sin had graffitied my life. Sin had marked me up. But I came to the cleaning station, and his blood got a hold of me. Do you know what happened over the next several years? You're not going to believe this. They got control of the subways because somebody said, we're just going to stop it with the graffiti. It's amazing. They cleaned up all the trains, and over the next three, four, five years, people started paying to go through the turnstile and get on. People stopped murdering people. How does that happen? It's a tipping point. It's how it happens. Somebody said, I'm going to stop it where it starts. Do you know how you become an overcomer in your life with God? Temptation's not going to leave. But when temptation comes walking up with that bottle and says, I'm going to make you what I want you to be, you say, I know where the fountain is. I'm headed for my cleansing this morning. Let that cleansing flood, Lord.